We're embarking today on a lengthy trek through the two letters of the Apostle Peter. This isn't unusual for us. We spent 67 weeks in Genesis and 170 weeks in the Gospel of Luke, just to name a few. So what is it that we are doing and why? What we're doing is, beginning today, Lectio Continua preaching through the epistles of Peter, consecutive exposition. Each week until we are done, we will preach the next context. And I want to explain why we do this. There are some of you who have never been in a church that does consecutive expository preaching. We do this predominantly, not exclusively, because first of all, ministers are commanded to preach the whole counsel of God in Acts chapter 20. We do this because as ministers, we must give an account of our ministry. We must, on the last day, answer for your souls and your minds. We cannot, dare not, withhold any portion of Scripture. We do this because it teaches good hermeneutics. As the pastor gives the congregation a model, context by context of how to handle the Scripture carefully, a a text is always presented in its proper context. And we do this because it makes the minister the slave of the text. The pastor cannot skip around the Bible choosing snatches of a verse that fit his hobby horse or his interest. He must expound and apply the whole Bible. And we do this primarily. And I'm quoting David Wells here. David Wells, who has written more carefully, insightfully, powerfully in his series of books on the contemporary church. In his book, The Above all earthly powers, Dr. Wells writes, The word of God is the means by which God accomplishes his saving work in people. And this is a work which no one else can do. This is why the dearth, Wells continues, of serious, sustained biblical preaching in the church is a serious matter. When the church loses the preaching of the word of God, it loses the very means by which God does his work. In the absence of such preaching, a script is being written for the church's undoing, not in one cataclysmic moment, but in a slow, inexorable slide made up of Sunday-by-Sunday dereliction on the part of our ministries. And we do this as well, consecutive expository preaching, because our strategy, and we will tell you it's not a hidden agenda, our strategy is to create mature believers. The New Testament is extremely clear and repeatedly so that my function is to exert maximum Holy Spirit-empowered effort to see you grow into maturity. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave some to be pastors for the equipping of the saints until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children. And I am more committed than ever in preaching in such a way to see you grow deep and mature in your Christian life. I'm frequently saddened by much pulpit ministry in evangelical churches, thinking, this is what you're going to feed people who have been believers for 30, 40, 50 years? I'm committed to assisting you to grow up. Now, a few things. I hope you'll take your copy of God's Word in hand and look at the first word of 1 Peter. Not the first verse, but just the first word. I want to give you just a tease of where we are going. What you will notice is the author of our 
books, First and Second Peter, is Peter. Now, we believe in the dual authorship of Scripture, and so let me speak first of who the divine author is. The divine author of, of Peter's letters is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uses the character, the intelligence, the personality, the training, the background of this man, Peter of the Galilean region, to write this book so that it perfectly communicates the absolute truth. This is why Peter's contemporary Paul can say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. When Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, he literally says all scripture is God-breathed, the Greek word there being the famous theopneustos, meaning this text comes from the mouth of God. But the human author, and that's where our focus will be this morning, the human author of First Peter and Second Peter is the apostle Peter. As with any human document, it's vital to know the author, their background and their viewpoint. One of my favorite authors is Flannery O'Connor. And so I always feel the need, whenever I'm recommending one of her books, to give a lot of background. She's a Southern Roman Catholic from the mid-20th century. If you don't understand her Milledgeville, Georgia roots, you'll never understand her writing. If you don't know that she died at 39 at the age of uh, 39 of lupus, you'll not understand her. If you don't understand that she was single, never had a relationship with a man, if you don't know that she was a deep student of scripture and church history, you'll not grasp her writing. The same thing can be said of the Apostle Peter. What I want to do this morning is tell you 15 things that you must know about Peter to understand First and Second Peter. 15 major details. And if you're going to understand his writings, it's going to be imperative that you understand these 15 details. Now, I have to tell you, I do have some mercy in my bones. My original list started out as 34 things you should know about Peter. So we pared it down to, to 15 because I do have to teach Sunday school this morning as well. So let's seek the Lord's help as we prepare to study Peter this morning. Oh, sovereign Lord, you have told us that your word makes wise the simple. We confess that we are simple, and we will not be wise until we sit at your feet and drink deeply from your word. And so cause us this morning to be still and alert as we hear you speaking in your holy word. Then transform us, even mature us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to share, as I said, 15 vital details concerning Peter. All of this is considerate background. You will understand Peter's writings in First and Second Peter far better if you know all of these backgrounds. This will give you some context for First Peter. And so the first thing you should know, as with all of us, is Peter's roots. We are told that Peter repeatedly, we are told that Peter is from Bethsaida. It's a town in Galilee, the same region, by the way, as Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter grows up in Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida means the house of fish. Bethsaida was a fishing village on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. This means that Peter would have spoken Aramaic as his first language and then Greek and Hebrew secondarily. Peter, we are told in Mark 14, had a, had a strong Galilean accent marking him out as being from that region. Now, for those of you who have ever kind of created this mental picture, a false mental picture of Peter, and you think of him as sort of a bull in a china shop who's an empty-headed dolt, let me ask you, do you speak three languages? 
Peter knows three languages, and perhaps more, but at least Aramaic, uh, Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew. Second thing that you should know about Peter. Peter had a life before Jesus called him. He was a commercial fisherman. This was incredibly demanding and dangerous work. It was a manly vocation. Peter had biceps. The other night uh, at this wedding right here, as Avery Anderson was married, I was so delighted. It's always a joy. Every time Pastor Anderson's dad, Norman Anderson, shows up, Norman Anderson has been a rancher and a farmer and a cattleman his whole life, and, and he's the sort of big guy that when he shakes your hand, you already know, this is a guy who works for a living. And when I shook hands with, with Norman, who had on his best cowboy boots to come see his granddaughter get married, and he stuck his hand out, and his hand is about this thick. You know, this is a guy who works for a living. Well, you would have said the exact same thing with Peter. His hands were torn and burnt from pulling in rope, and he had huge calluses. He knew how to work. But you also need to know that he had a life before Christ called him. He was a married man. The evidence is repeated. We're told in Luke chapter 4 that he had a mother-in-law. And this is going to be deeply important because when he speaks on marriage in 1 Peter 3, he's not inexperienced. As again I say, the, the mention of Peter's wife's mother proves that he was married. But Peter's wife was still living during his ministry, even after the death and resurrection of Christ. Look carefully with me at 1 Corinthians 9, and I want you to see what we are told about Peter's wife. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, the apostle Paul says, it's very interesting that Paul would know this about Peter. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. This indicates that several of the apostles were married during their ministry, and their wives traveled with them, Peter especially being noted. Now, part of the reason why I tell you this is the Roman Catholic Church would claim Peter to be the first pope then how in the world can they claim it is wrong for priests to marry? If this were a sin, why didn't Jesus immediately reject Peter as an apostle since he had a wife? It's, it's passing ludicrous that the Roman Catholic Church would teach that Peter was its first pope, a model to all its successors, yet forbid its priests to marry, despite his being a married man. More that you need to know about Peter before Jesus called him he was the brother of Andrew. And we are told specifically in John chapter 1 that his brother Andrew was, before Jesus burst onto the scene, a close disciple of John the Baptist. And so Peter had had, if through his brother, he had had close exposure to John's teaching. And then there's that business of his name. His name, the Hebrew name, is Simon. <clears throat> By the way, this is what all of his close friends, such as James, would call him, even after Jesus changed his name, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Jesus having been died, resurrected, and ascended for years at that point, James still slips up and calls him in Acts 15, Simon. But Jesus changes it in a profound move in John chapter 1, changes his name to Peter, meaning, depending on how you translate the word, either the pebble or the rock, and also Cephas which is the Greek translation of Peter, 
becoming his familiar designation. A third thing you should know about Peter in terms of his context, his calling. He was called from day one by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an evangelist. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, when he calls Peter, tells him, From now on, Peter, this is your primary focus. You are to be a fisher of men, meaning you are to be an evangelist. And we see that calling fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2, when he catches thousands of men in the gospel net by his powerful evangelistic preaching. And what we're going to see all through the letters of First and Second Peter is Peter never gets too far. Oh, he'll veer off into this subject of, of marriage or suffering or how to relate to the civil magistrate, but he always comes back to proclaiming the gospel, always comes back to evangelism because that's his calling from Jesus. A fourth detail you should know about Peter. So I want you to think with me, and remember, this happens long before he ever puts pen to papyrus to pen his letters. Peter, during his three years of teaching, is intimate with Christ. Think about some of the evidences of the fact that he's part of the inner circle of the apostles, along with James and John. This is proved by Jesus' invitation to him to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. It's proven by Jesus' invitation to him to go and sit and watch and pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before our Lord's crucifixion. And so this Peter, during that three and a half years, he witnesses up close and personal thousands of our Lord's miracles. He was one of the few invited to see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. This is the Peter who walked on water. And then the fifth detail you should know is I'm going to tell the whole story. One of the things that's been stating about dis discussions of our history and how it's taught in our country right now is those who only want to tell the bad stuff and those who only want to tell the good stuff, you need to know both if you're going to understand First Peter. And so a fifth issue is you need to know what Peter's high water mark is in the Gospels. This was his one shining moment. Look back to Matthew 16, the passage that Pastor Anderson read in your hearing a moment ago. This is Peter's great confession. And in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples two questions. The first is in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? And so here come the answers from his disciples. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus asked a second question, but who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking if they're willing to take a stand against popular erroneous opinion when the truth of the gospel is at stake and when his glory is at stake. And so Peter answers in this moment succinctly. Peter disagrees with all of the popular theories and says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And by the way, this is the first public confession of faith in Christ. This is the true Apostles' Creed. This is the prime article of saving faith. What is involved in that moment when Peter says in verse 16, you are the Christ? This is tantamount to saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're the one spoken about by the prophets of Israel, prayed for, longed for, and hoped for. You're the great I am. 
He's saying, Jesus, you're that prophet of Deuteronomy 18. You're that priest of Psalm 110. You're that king of Psalm 2. You are the mighty counselor. You are the wonderful God, the prince of peace of Isaiah 9. By the way, when he confesses, you're the Christ. This means you're the anointed one. Where did this knowledge come from? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 17. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Peter's understanding didn't come from human calculation or intuition or just good instincts. This knowledge has to come from a divine revelation. Because by sight, all Peter saw in front of them there was a poor man who often had no place to lay his head. And yet it was at this time that Peter boldly declares his faith that Jesus is the Christ. The glory of Peter's confession in this moment was when it was unpopular. You live today, still, still in the year 2023, you still live in a culture of many professing Christians. But Peter lived in a culture of unbelieving Jews. What makes Peter's confession here in Matthew 16 so marvelous is that he makes this confession when very few were with Jesus and most were against him. The political and religious rulers were all against Jesus. Peter made this confession of Christ when Jesus was in the form of a servant without wealth or power or any of the marks of his kingship. To make such a confession at such a time required incredible courage and great faith. No wonder Jesus says to him in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon. You and I would do well to copy Peter's bravery and his willingness to go counter to the culture. We are far too inclined to underrate Peter because of his occasional instability. But even with all his imperfections, he has given us a godly pattern here in Matthew 16, a pattern of confessing Christ clearly. That's the high point. Now for the bad news. The sixth detail you should know about Peter is his many low points during the ministry of Jesus. We could call them blunders, and we could choose several, but we'll just point out five. First of all, Peter has just confessed Jesus. And notice here in Matthew 16, I hope you still have your Bible open there, Peter has just confessed Jesus. And then Peter, look at verse 22. Just let your fingers slide down the page a tiny bit. Matthew 16, 22. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, at least he took him aside. At least he did this in private. And so Jesus, notice what he calls Peter. He calls him Satan. Because just like the evil one, what Peter's problem is in this text, he's trying to get Jesus to wear a crown without the cross. A second low point. Peter does it again. We're told in John 13, when he sees Jesus disrobing and getting a towel and a basin and beginning to wash the filthy feet of the other disciples, Peter rebukes Jesus again. And says in John 13, you shall never wash my feet. A third blunder. Peter grabs a sword as Jesus is being arrested by the huge Roman and Jewish cohort on that Monday Thursday night. And we are told in John 19 verse 26 that he is the disciple 
who slices off the ear of one of those who comes for Jesus. Peter, it turns out, and we could point to other evidences, is a violent man. He's got a temper. He gets angry. He goes from zero to 60 fast. A fourth blunder of Peter's. And of course, we'll spend some more time on this in just a moment. The blunder, the blunder of all blunders, the Mount Everest of blunders, is his threefold betrayal of Jesus on Thursday night. The fifth is even when Jesus has just restored Peter, in John chapter 21, Peter's still unable to get out of his own way. And he can't just be content and, and deliriously happy that Christ has restored him to fellowship and friendship. He begins to poke his nose into other people's business. And so he asks about John and what's going to become of John. And Jesus has to rebuke him again after the resurrection in John 21 and tell him to mind his own business. A seventh detail you must know about Peter. And that is his astounding restoration. In order to talk about Peter's restoration, we have to dredge up one of the most painful scenes in all of Scripture. Look at John chapter 18. And it's painful for you and I. It's, it's emotional for us to look at this because it begins, to, it begins to point us towards times when we have done the same thing. But when Peter denies Christ, it's spectacular. It's astounding. In John chapter 18, it's Thursday night in Jerusalem during Passover and Jesus has just been arrested. And the first mockery of a Jewish trial is happening in the homes of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest and the high priest's son-in-law. And it appears these two high priests, one the former high priest, the high priest emeritus, and one the active, it appears they shared a courtyard between their house. And out in the courtyard of the home, servants and guards and others are warming themselves by a fire. And Peter sidles up. Now, within the last 90 minutes, he's just sliced the ear off of one who came for Jesus. But now he tries to blend into the crowd. He wants to see what's done with Jesus. And around the fire, conversations are happening about the events of the night. And in John 18, beginning in verse 15, we see denial number one. Peter's confronted first by a girl. The Greek word there is paideia, a teenager, who's a servant. She poses no threat, has no legal power. John 18, 17 simply says she's the doorkeeper. She's not a menacing intimidator. She's a girl. All she says is this. You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter's embarrassed of Jesus. Doesn't want anybody to know of his association with Jesus. And so Peter lies. I am not. First denial. A few minutes go by. And denial number two happens. Look at verse 18 of John 18 and then verse 25. Now Peter not only denies the Lord, but he denies any connection with the people of God. I am not one of his disciples. And Peter's anger is stirring up. And then the third denial. Look at verse 26 and 27. A relative of Malchus, the servant who's ear Peter cut off, recognizes Peter. We're, we're told in Mark 14 that Peter's Galilean accent gives him away, and he's confronted a third time. And we learn from Mark 14 that Peter bitterly disavows any connection to Jesus, and he curses and swears. He would have said something like this. 
I don't know Jesus of Nazareth and may God do this or that to me if I'm lying. No sooner did the words of Peter's third denial leave his lips when he hears very loudly the crowing of a rooster. Remember our Lord's prophetic words just a few hours earlier in the upper room? Jesus turned to Peter and very specifically looked at him with all the other disciples in the room. And our Lord said, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, then strengthen your brethren. Peter said to them in that moment, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you'll deny three times that you even know me. We're told in Luke 22, I think it might be the most pathos-filled text in all of the Gospels, that when the rooster crows, and there is Jesus being held around the fire, and there's Peter off in the shadows, that when the rooster crows, Luke 22 tells us, The Lord turns and he looks at Peter. Jesus is being moved through the courtyard from Annas to Caiaphas' house, and he and Peter can clearly see each other. And when that rooster crows, Jesus turns and his eyes lock onto Peter. And as Peter sees Jesus, Jesus' face would have already been covered with spit because the Sanhedrin members had been spitting on him, we're told. His face would have already been battered and swollen and bruised and black and blue and bleeding because they'd been punching and slapping Jesus in the face. And when Jesus looks at Peter, he would have had that haunted, abandoned look, a look of betrayal and insulted friendship, a look of reproof, a look that broke Peter's heart. It was a knowing look that says, Peter, it's happening, just as I told you. Now remember it all, because I prophesied more than your fall, as the rooster crowed, I prophesied your restoration as well. It's a good thing that Jesus interceded for Peter, that his faith not fail, because you know what Satan was whispering in Peter's ear over the next three days. Peter, you're finished. Even if Jesus comes out of the grave, he'll never speak to you again. Peter the rock, ha, more like Peter the pebble, and telling James and John that you're going to be the greatest, oh, that's great. Peter, and those, those curse words that you use, choice specimens from my dictionary. Don't you think, Peter, it would be a good idea for you to go ahead and just commit suicide and end your life? But no. Jesus had prayed for him that his faith not fail. After the restoration or the resurrection of Jesus, we have the amazing restoration of Peter in John 21. Jesus and Peter meet around the fire by the sea. And when Jesus sees him, he calls him, Simon, his old name, since he was acting like the old man. And Jesus is taking Peter back to the very beginning of their relationship and starting afresh. He doesn't call Peter his apostolic name, but Jesus calls him Simon, which was his name before he met Christ. And Jesus, in that restoration, repeatedly commands Peter to be busy about caring for the sheep of the flock. And he repeatedly asks Peter, do you love me? By asking Peter this question repeatedly, he's reminding Peter of his boast when Peter had said, I'm more loyal to you than all these other men. 
Jesus is humbling him. In order to restore Peter, Jesus must refocus Peter on the foundations. The greatest task, loving Christ. The eighth detail you need to know if you're going to understand the Peter who writes the words of First and Second Peter. Peter is the premier apostle. And there's not even a close second. In Acts chapter 1, Peter is listed, among, is listed first among the apostles after Christ's ascension. In Acts chapter 1, it's Peter who proposes a replacement for Judas and the other apostles agree. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, it's Peter who explains the phenomena of tongues and preaches the first sermon of the new covenant. In Acts chapter 3, it's Peter who performs the first public miracle of the new covenant, healing a lame man. In Acts chapter 5, it's Peter who pronounces the word of church discipline and the doom of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter, what we see when we read through Acts, is the obvious, acknowledged spokesman of the apostles. A ninth thing that you need to know about Peter. His spectacular sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter is a phenomenal student of the Old Testament. I hope that this begins to place Peter in higher esteem in your eyes as a biblical exegete. Far too often we think of Peter as a blustering galoot, but we don't see him rightly as a careful exegete of the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, this afternoon, just read the sermon that Peter preaches in Acts 2. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands before thousands of men, many of them priests and Levites, men who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. Peter stands and he preaches an expository sermon from the book of Joel. This just shows that Peter's been listening and carefully considering the whole Old Testament as Jesus has taught. Not just the big narratives creation, the Abrahamic covenant, the exodus under Moses, David's reign. But Peter has been analyzing, meditating on what we would call the more obscure books. Peter preaches from Joel. And he's been studying them to understand God's ways in time and history, and especially to see Christ. But Peter's more than just a Bible student. I know lots of people who are Bible students, but they can't proclaim what they understand in any sort of compelling way to others. Peter not only is a Bible student, he's a Bible preacher. God has so gifted him, and you'll see this when you look at his sermon from Acts 2. God has so gifted him that he can succinctly, powerfully explain and proclaim biblical truth in an orderly, logical way that goes straight to the heart of his hearers. This is the Peter, by the way, who just seven weeks before the day of Pentecost had been fearful of a servant girl and afraid to confess Jesus to anyone. Now he stands transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He stands and raises his voice fearlessly to speak to thousands of men. He's been changed from a coward to a courageous, careful, insightful preacher. He tells this huge crowd of thousands of men in Acts 2, that he's going to explain the Pentecostal phenomena, and he summons everyone to pay attention. Listen to how he begins his sermon in Acts 2.14. Heed my words. He refutes the charges that the apostles are drunk. He explains the prophecy of Joel and how it's being fulfilled. 
And then Peter lives up to his calling to be a fisher of men. In Acts 2.21, he extends the free offer of the gospel. And many are saved on that day under the hearing of the word from Peter. A tenth thing you should know about Peter is Peter is persecuted for his identification with Jesus. Peter, as we'll see in just a moment, and I hope you won't let this move out of the front of your brain. Peter speaks often in his epistles about suffering for Christ. And he knows a thing or two about suffering for Christ. In Acts chapter 5, he's beaten by Jewish leaders for preaching Jesus. And when he is, Peter's response is to rejoice that he's been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, and he goes right on preaching Jesus. In Acts chapter 12, Peter's thrown in prison by the Roman leaders, but miraculously freed by an angel. And what we see Peter's career is he moves from one beating to one jail cell to another beating to another jail cell until the very end. Peter is persecuted as a result of his identification with Jesus. The 11th thing you should know about Peter this is very complex, could spend a couple of mornings actually on this whole issue, is Peter is the mentor of the Apostle Paul. Listen to what Paul says about his relationship with Peter. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, he says, after he's converted, he says, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia, returned again to Damascus, Then after three years, listen to where he goes. When he wants to hear it from the horse's mouth, when he wants to be mentored, Paul goes for the top. He says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. And I remained with him three days, 15 days. And so Paul, when he wants to be discipled, when he wants to get his doctrine straight, he goes to Peter. Paul is being taught by Peter at this point. But at some point, at some point, and we can't pinpoint exactly where, Paul becomes the teacher. He zooms past Peter. And so Peter will call Paul a beloved brother at the close of 2 Peter 3. And Peter will say these words that have given many of us comfort and hope when we feel like dolts. Peter speaks of Paul in this way in 2 Peter 3.16. He says, he's the author of some things that are hard to understand. Remember that next, the next time you're reading Romans chapter 8. Even Peter agrees and says, Paul is the author of some things hard to understand. A twelfth thing you should know about Peter. Peter is the first preacher to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10 through 12, We see Peter doing that as he preaches to Cornelius. Now think about what a switch this is for Peter. By the way, this is Peter's ongoing difficulty. The Gentiles. You remember in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had sent Peter to preach to the Jews only. And if not received, shake the dust off his feet. But here in Acts 10 through 12, Peter is summoned by the Holy Spirit to preach to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And he does. And by doing so, he opens the door for Paul and others by this ministry. Thirteenth, and this should give you and I much hope and encouragement. Peter continues to fumble even as he matures. Look at Galatians chapter 2, and I want you to see, now this isn't Peter's threefold denial. 
This is Peter, the mature apostle. This is Peter, the evangelist. This is Peter who's been in prison. This is Peter who suffered for Jesus. And he still continues to fumble. And I want you to notice carefully the words that Paul uses of him in Galatians 2. There's some key words here. And we can, by the see where Peter's ongoing struggle is. Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul writes, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Well, what's Peter's problem? Read on. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself. Look at this key word, fearing. Fearing those who are the circumcision, Peter continues to be plagued with the fear of man and the desire for the approval of men. And then Paul gets tougher with his critique of Peter. Look what he says in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Do you hear what he's calling Peter? He's saying you are deeply involved in hypocrisy. He says so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And then comes the most intense critique. This is an apostle. This is Paul critiquing Peter. Look at verse 14. But when I saw, oh, that this would never be said of you and I, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And then he really lets Peter have it. Let me tell you what Peter struggles with till the very end, until he writes First and Second Peter. Peter struggles with, and this is what's underneath this debate in Galatians 2. Peter struggles with justification by faith alone, and especially the role of the ceremonial law. Can a Gentile be saved without becoming a Jew? Peter struggles with that. He has titanic struggles. A 14th thing you should know about Peter in terms of understanding him as the writer of our letters. Peter is an author. It's very interesting that there are no possible issues affirming Peter as the author of these general epistles. General means they're written to the church at large and not one congregation. He writes them about 64 AD. All the earliest church fathers, from Polycarp to Irenaeus to Clement of Rome, all affirm and quote Peter. The first historian of the early church, Eusebius, classes 1 Peter as one of the books universally accepted as part of the New Testament canon. Now, it's interesting when Peter writes, we'll look next week, Peter's audience is the churches across what is much of modern-day Turkey, Gentiles. He writes to churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what's so interesting is the people of these regions were very diverse, speaking several languages, some rural, some poor, some urban, some wealthy, very mixed with Gentiles and Jews. A 15th thing you should know about Peter. Peter's martyred for Christ. In the days leading up to Peter's death, almost all of the apostles had been martyred. The Lord Jesus had predicted Peter's death by crucifixion when he said in John 21, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. He's speaking there of Peter's death on a cross. And another will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. All the early church fathers from Tertullian to Eusebius state that Peter was stretched out by his hands, dressed in prison garb. 
He was taken where no one wanted to go, to the cross, and was crucified. But they all insist, historically, that Peter demanded to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus Christ had been. Now, I want to make a couple of applications to us today. I want to go ahead and prepare you. You may not want to be here for the next 14 months. One of my most important pastoral tasks is to prepare you for suffering. What Peter is going to do, beginning in chapter 1 and then all the way through the end of these epistles, Peter is going to write to people and acknowledge they are in the midst of trials. He will say in chapter 3, they are suffering for righteousness' sake. He will say in chapter 3 that they're being falsely accused as evildoers. He will say in chapter 4 that they are going through a fiery ordeal that tries them. He will state in chapter 5 that these trials are typical. And they're experienced by believers worldwide. And Peter states his purpose for writing. It's tucked away in 1 Peter 4.19 when Peter says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good. You're not first Americans, but Christians. Christians are aliens and exiles on this globe. The world doesn't owe Christians anything, and Christians should expect to suffer. I have to preach these truths that I'm going to about suffering, even when things are going well, because hostility against believers is built into the fabric of the fallen world. I want to help you see as believers that life in a fallen world is hard, and you are intended to suffer. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you? That's plain biblical teaching that Peter certainly heard. Thereby, suffering by persecution is not just peculiar to America. World Magazine this week has a huge spread on the incredible sufferings of Nigerian Christians, where we will be sending our brother Reuben back to in a couple of years. But it's not just Nigeria. All the world over, Christians are suffering persecution. This week, Indian Christians have been beaten by Hindu mobs for one crime, worshiping. This week, the Chinese government goons have imprisoned more Christian leaders. And what my task is in preaching to you first and second Peter is to prepare martyrs. I want to so preach the sovereignty of God and that suffering is to be expected. What I want to teach to you is the diametrically opposed doctrine from prosperity theology. One of the many problems with the prosperity gospel is that it lacks any doctrine of suffering. If you're a prosperity gospel minister, you cannot preach First and Second Peter. But what I want to do with you is build the capacity to suffer into you. First and Second Peter will do that. This suffering may be born, maybe a child born without certain abilities, or a horrendous marriage. Or it may be persecution from family or government. Nobody can really predict in what ways Christians will suffer in their lifetimes. But the kind of preaching you need to enable you to bear up is found in First and Second Peter. Listen to what Peter will say in First Peter 2. You have been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example that you must follow in his steps. Or Peter says, when you suffer in chapter 3, when you suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. And so what I would plead with you is to open your mind and heart to be instructed in the spiritual discipline of suffering over the next several months. Let me as well exhort you to make an unshakable commitment to be under the preaching of this word week by week. It is the preaching of the word that has power and efficacy. This is where you will grow in faith because faith comes by hearing. This is how you will grow as a believer. There is no other magic bullet. Peter himself will tell you in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you should long for the pure milk of the word. That's how you'll mature. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess our lack of hunger for your word. Have mercy upon us. And so in weeks to come, we ask that you would mature us. As we hear the preaching of the word, greatly deepen our dependence upon the Holy Scriptures. Give us an addiction to the word that is unshakable. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.